This podcast number 796 with Eric Wall is brought to you by Robert Franklin, the author of a new book entitled Moral Leadership, Integrity, Courage, Imagination. Please join Robert and Greg on podcast number 795 where they discuss the virtues and attributes a moral leader possesses. In this interview with Robert, they discuss the need to develop more moral leaders in our country. They also discussed some of the influences that Dr. Martin Luther King had in his life, such as Mahatma Gandhi and Paul Tillich, the author of Love, Power, and Justice. I hope you enjoy this podcast with Dr. Robert Franklin from Emory University about his perspectives on the need for more moral leaders and how this relates to our current challenges in the U.S. Again, Please listen to podcast number 795. And for more information on Dr. Robert Franklin, please visit his website at www.robertmfranklin.com. That's R-O-B-E-R-T-M-F-R-A-N-K-L-I-N.com. And now for a featured podcast number 796, please listen to Greg and Eric Wall. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voison, the host of Inside Personal Growth. And Eric is joining me from San Diego, California. And most of my listeners know I'm in Encinitas. So he is not that far from me, maybe 30 miles maximum. Eric Wall, good morning to you. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Greg. Good morning to you as well. Just a stone's throw up the way in yeah. Encinitas. Yeah, and it's it's a pleasure having you on. I read your one of your previous books, Unthink. And this morning, we're going to be talking about the spark in the grind. Uh, this book is exceptional. Ignite the power of disciplined creativity. And I love the part about disciplined creativity because many of us get off thinking, okay, we can, uh, we can sit somewhere and all these ideas are just going to come to us and then they're going to manifest. Well, that's not quite the way it's going to work. And Eric's going to tell you that. Eric's an internationally recognized artist, a TEDx speaker, number one best-selling author. Uh, through breakthrough experiences, an artist and entrepreneur has translated into making him into one of the most sought-after corporate speakers on the circuit today. Uh, Eric's previous book, as I said, is bestseller called Unthink, was hailed by Forbes magazine as the blueprint to actionable creativity and by Fast Company magazine as provocative with a purpose. The Warhol of Wall Street, the Renoir of ROI, the Picasso of Productivity, the Jobs of Well Jobs. Um, <laughs> I like that one. And his list of clients are AT&T, Disney, London School of Business, Ernst & Young, XPRIZE, Mobile, Microsoft, you name it. He's spoken to thousands of people. And before we came on, he actually used to book speakers, and I'm sure we'll get into a little bit of that. So he went from booking speakers to actually becoming one of the uh, most sought-after speakers around. And Eric, this book really, for me, uh, just brings up with inside me the be- being an entrepreneur and being somebody who has to be out there thinking of new ideas and I, I had a gal on seeing around corners. I call it about like seeing around corners. How do you kind of predict and how do you uh, innovate something and create something new? And you always have to have your 
hand on the pulse. And I appreciate how you start the book off because it's really about duality between creativity and the doingness of life, right? Um, when people get stuck, though, and they're not able to get their creativity mojo going, which happens a lot, um, you know, look, you're kind of the guy who was able to do this. What do you recommend them to get this spark back? Sure. Well, and just riffing off of what you just outlined there, I hadn't heard that before. Scene around corners, uh, the gal who you had on, and even your book, Intuition to Innovation. Creativity for me is akin to the word curiosity. Uh, so where there's any lack of creativity in adults, there's usually a lack of curiosity. Curiosity for mastering a new complexity, curiosity for uh, navigating new and unfound land or ideas. So it, that really is where I start that process from, seeing around corners, feeling around corners, being curious around that corner, curious about our intuitions. But the paradox of creativity, what I wrote about in The Spark and the Grind, is this paradox of the discipline of creativity. Those don't typically, those words don't go together. Either we're disciplined, numbers, driven, divide and conquer, or we're intuitive, innovative, creative, um, and curious. And so what I've found is they actually, the two go together. And the way our mind works, and your listeners all know this, but we have these two very separate components of our mind, the left analytical, logical, problem-solving space of our mind, and then this intuitive, creative, risk-taking, curious problem-solving space of our mind. But particularly in the Western Hemisphere here as adults, as professionals, even as parents, we actually exist in this analytical, logical, rational problem-solving space of our mind, the vast majority of our adult waking life, we're almost naturally resistant to venturing into that unchartered, can sometimes feel like it is vulnerable, sometimes intuitive, but oftentimes risk-taking, problem-solving territory of our mind. And it, it happens almost from the time that we all first entered school. We were taught and disciplined to take all of our wonderful, different, cool, multi-dimensional type ideas and solutions, and then narrow them down to come up just one singular standardized response. And then that got a little worse as we became adults or entered positions of responsibility or professional leadership positions. Uh, we became increasingly risk averse, right. increasing, in, increasingly skeptical about our intuition and more driven by data and results and logic. And so well, that, we got, that, we got molded into that somebody as Ram Dass cause, you know, in other words, it's like you, you put on this, this robe and it is who you become because people say, well, you know, I grew up in school. My parents wanted to be a doctor or an engineer or a scientist or a, it doesn't matter what it is. And you start to take on all these roles, right? And if you're going to get to this super creative side, I've, what I've found, I'm just saying personally, and then I'll get to another question here. You kind of has to, you have to disrobe. You have to be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. uh, Brene Brown talks about vulnerability. Uh, Daring greatly. You have, to be, you have to be authentic. You have to let go. And right now during COVID, right? Let's think about this. You got a ton of fear. People start to contract during fear, not expand, right? They start to go inward. They're afraid, whatever. You can't be creative from fear, right? No. Um, it, it's impossible. Yet on the other hand, when you can conquer that fear, like free solo, 
and you can climb El Capitan. Great documentary. Right, right. My point is, when you get to that point, you can do amazing things like you did. And, and, and I just think that it's wonderful to see a guy that, you know, hey, you became an artist on stage. And you mentioned that our desire for creativity is one of the most transcendent desires of our lives. Uh, if not the most, you state that this desire is as a result for more meaning in our lives. I think that if I was going to underline anything, it's more meaning. What do you believe allows us to access that spiritual element to find the meaning in what we are creating or and or doing? Because the creative process isn't just about thinking, isn't about sitting on a rock with our hand like this. It's about doing after that. And that's what this whole book's about, right? Is this balance between these two things. It is. And it's an encouragement for those who are stuck or don't feel like they're moving in a creative way. And like you said, given COVID, with all the contraction and uncertainty, it's actually created a tremendous opportunity for persons to differentiate or be creative because so few are at this point. So there's there's a very com- distinct, compelling advantage to being able to free up your mind to be creative. But for me, where it starts is, and the reason why creativity is such a a soulful connection, spiritual connection for me, because it's born out of our worldview. If our worldview is a worldview of scarcity, then there's not enough for everyone. We need to compete. We need to label. We need to compare. We need to measure. Uh, And oftentimes when we're doing that, we're shrinking our ability to be intuitive or innovative or creative. If our worldview is one from abundance, that there's enough for everyone, that gratitude, empathy, compassion always play a role, there's always room to create, room to give, room to expand consciousness. So it's a very basal role for me in that being creative is a spiritual journey. Actually, the next book I'm publishing is a, is a book on spirituality with my co-writing with uh, my wife, Tasha. Uh, But we're very excited about it because we've been uh, deeply diving into this idea of the connection of creativity, spirituality, life, love, faith, hope, suffering, death. You know, when I all interconnected, when I talked to you today, Eric, you're a completely different person that you write about in the book. You know, you you talk at length in this book about how this was real a challenge for you. You know, you used to be this doing guy, do, 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 do. You had to wake up on the phone and pick it up and dial, dial, dial to get bookings or doing your tradings in the morning when you were doing the day trading and all the stuff that you did, 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 right? And I sense that even today, this whole balancing act is still challenging for you because that's like ingrained part of your DNA. So what would you tell a listener today out there saying, Hey Eric, that's really cool. I love the spiritual stuff, but you know what? I still got to make a living and feed my family. You say, don't get rid of your day job at one point in the book, you know, um, talk about that if you would, because that is really the essence of this is like, how do I balance all this? That, structure creates freedom. Again, it's that paradox of organizing our day, organizing the thoughts in our mind. So many times I've worked in, certainly I work in the corporate world and trying to encourage them to be creative. But on on the flip side, to understand light, we need to know dark. And when I work with creatives, musicians, talent directors, actors, 
poets, oftentimes they struggle to get brand recognition, struggle to make those first steps because they don't make their creativity a, a discipline or mm-hmm. a, a, core, a core action in the day. And what oftentimes happens is they become a little bit delusional about their own work. Uh, they become very sensitive, oftentimes withdrawn from culture or society because they feel like the world just doesn't get them. Um, but helping them to encourage them, once you create a good idea, that's only half the battle. The next idea is how to put that into action, understanding the data behind it, the marketing behind it, the analytics behind it, being able to push it out in a sensible way into the proper direction. So there's a lot of research and development. There's a lot of knowledge about the marketing and understanding that what we're doing as artists, what we're creating, whether you're selling insurance or you're marketing real estate or you're building a brand, is you are selling ideas. You're persuading others about the, the ideas that you're creating and then doing it in an effective way to give them traction. So creativity with handles, uh, innovation with discipline, they're, they're the, that is the catalyst, the spark which creates the idea, but it's the grind and the push is what gets it out there. And you talk about these, these different elements of my own life, and I absolutely confess to, yes, they are, and they've been driven by oftentimes breaking points in myself from doing, from hustling. I, I suffered um, some physical challenges just after the publishing of Spark and the Grind, which caused me to reassess all of the things, all of the doing that I had done in my life. But it's that adaptation. Uh, at first, there's great resistance. I don't want to stop doing this. I want to keep hustling. But my body's telling me surrender. My body's telling me that there might be greener pastures, even though I don't see them over in this new neck of the woods. The first one after uh, early, the dot-com bubble, was what kind of gave me the push to go from day job into artist. And then these new ones with with health and even losing a loved one, the loss of my father back in just after the publishing of The Spark and the Grind forced me again to reassess my life, my actions, and my, my future. But it's all been part of the journey and it's all good. It's not a chameleon. It right. is the ability to adapt into new situations. Well, you don't look at it with resistance. You know, I, I love what Ram Dass said in the documentary, Becoming Nobody. You know, death is like taking off a, a, a tight shoe, right? And I think people think of it as finality. And it depends on your view about spirituality as to really what it means. But look, None of us is getting out of here alive. All my listeners know that. We do a lot of, of programs on spirituality on this podcast um, because we're about business, spirituality, wellness, personal growth. Um, and so, you know, in the spark and the grind, you mentioned that the first truth that must be understood about creative endeavors is that the spark comes to life at the expense of the grind and that we will always run into problems when our efforts stop at the initial spark, because rarely is this the first spark and the hottest and the most potent spark. Can you give us some examples of people that exemplify, uh, I can think of many, going the extra mile once they receive this first insight or spark? Because, hey, look, uh, Alexander Graham Bell, you know, uh, Edison, Ford, uh, Steve Jobs. I mean, I have got story after story after story of people that, you know, had a spark, but then after the spark, man, it was a hell of a grind. <laughs> you, you, you hear stories of people, you know, walk, or maybe even ourselves, we're walking through the mall and we say to our friend, ah, 
you know, it'd be a great idea or, you know, it would make a lot of money. So we actually create a lot. There's actually no shortage of ideas. We oftentimes all think of them just based on the, the obstacles sometimes we face in life, sometimes the opportunities we see, but then how do we then take the next step? How do we put that into action? And that's again, where I go back to freedom by design or the structure or the discipline of creativity. You know, like you said, so many that have actually, and the world is full of people who've thought of great ideas and let them stay on their couch with a television and a bag of chips. How then do we take those yeah. ideas and start putting them into, into action? And I love I'll, your Nolan Bushnell quote. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I mean, they, you know, everybody thinks, I don't know, a lot of listeners that listen to the show don't even know who Nolan Bushnell uh, is, but you know, Nolan Bushnell is the guy who created Atari and then went on to all these other things. And he said, everybody has an idea in the shower. The question is whether or not you can execute on that idea. The <clears throat> number of great ideas that Nolan had, certainly Pong, he was the inventor of the original Pong right. that we used to play so long ago. And then through Atari, his development of Atari, then he left there to go start Chuck E. Cheese. Uh, so he is a, what they would call a serial entrepreneur, but it was because of his deep understanding of not just thinking about the idea in the shower, but then putting it into action, taking those next steps. And really, I, and I would say his ability to stop trying to be perfect and to start trying to be remarkable. And that's a great starting point for so many people who are looking to launch on that creative adventures is don't look for perfection. Look for that wow moment or that aha moment and then put energy behind that and then become comfortable with being uncomfortable. And that, that's a unique space yeah. where we don't spend a great deal of time. And also knowing that, that growth and comfort cannot coexist. So we must experience that discomfort of uncertainty. And there is so much uncertainty around us right now with, with COVID, with the social and political elements of our country, with the competitive landscape, with what's going on with uh, financials and the uh, stock market. It's creating a lot of uncertainty for what the next six months are going to hold. But because of that uncertainty has created tremendous opportunity for those who are willing to step out and to hold that uncertainty and then learn to grow from it. So I, I think now is a tremendous time because it's so chaotic to start creating the next Airbnb, creating the next Instagram, creating the next Uber out of a need for a new digital idea, new digital execution of an old strategy. Lots yeah. of opportunity. I would, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, Stephen Kotler has been on the show many times. Um, and, and the last book was The Future is Faster Than You Think. And, and you've probably maybe even spoken with Stephen or, or you know him. But my point is, is that, you know, if you look at where we're going, you know, people were, he talks about flying cars by 2021 with Uber, uh, testing them on the 405 right now, going up and down, uh, the speed of computing, which is multiplied so many times, the robots, sensors, all of this stuff, which is going to be integrated into our life soon. Now, Eric, you, you did this chapter called Trust the Process. And you mentioned that, you know, you're a hardworking husband and father and dedicated. And your limiting philosophy that had you convinced that grinding, which I just talked about, was the lone god of provision and prosperity. I, there probably couldn't have been more of a grinder than you were, based on what I read in here. Um, what in your life, and I hear your part about your, your health uh, and your father, 
But what in your life or did those two life events shift your philosophy to understand the harmony that must exist between the spark and the grind? I am one who, I, I guess, I don't know if, if extremist would be the right word, but I, I grew up with an athletic background and uh, particularly in wrestling. So anyone who's wrestled the famous Dan Gable quote, once you've wrestled, uh, you know, you can do anything. And your so dad I, was a shortstop too. Right? He was a shortstop. Yes. Yeah, and yeah. so I, I, I learned uh, through practice, through discipline, through hard work and gained many of the fruits or benefits from what that, uh, what that structure allowed for. But in doing that, I became such a grander that it limited my creative exposure. I was not uh, intuitive or innovative or curious or creative because I was so busy working so hard to execute the strategies that I already had in place. My head wasn't on a swivel. I was focused down, you know, athletes use it, you know, I was concentrated on the ball or concentrated on the dribble, not on what the defense was doing or where the, the openings were creatively You're focused too. on the takedown. <laughs> there you go. Focused on the takedown. I was a CIF. I was a CIF champ myself. In oh, you were. Yeah, I was. I, I did wrestling. I remember the sweating and the spitting and all the stuff you had to do to make your weight. You know, it was just something else, but wrestling is a one-on-one. So, you know, you're, you're extremely focused as a wrestler. Um, but, you know, so what shifted for you? That, that no longer served me. Uh, once I got, you know, I, and I went to college to get great grades, to get a great degree, to get a great job, to make a lot of money so that I could eventually retire early because my grinding, I could outgrind anybody. Uh, but what happened was, is that grinding led me to, you know, maximizing my returns. And at the end of the the 20th century, uh, everyone remembers the dot-com bomb and I, I lost everything. So all of that grinding, all of that hard work, all of that effort, the blood, sweat, and tears left me with nothing at the age of 30. And that despair, that dark night of the soul uh, caused, I guess, maybe an early midlife crisis where I, I didn't want to go back and re-grind. I didn't want to go back and do the steps that I'd already done. And so in a little bit of frustration, a little bit of despair, uh, a little bit of a quest for hope is I went out to find something that lit me up again. I knew what break, broke my heart. It was this deep financial loss and directional loss. Now, how is it going to refine uh, hope and a future? And I ended up finding that in, or with, certainly my artists, my friends who were artists, and then my own pursuit of, I just couldn't get enough of how these philosophers thought and how they then put their ideas on paper or in poems or in uh, um, sculptures, photography. So their ideas, ideals fascinated me from a very expansive, expanded consciousness standpoint and so as I dove deeply into there, that's where I realized that, wow, these artists have incredible ideas, but they don't have the grind. They don't have the necessary structure or discipline to be able to activate those ideas. And in the business world, the grinding world, they have incredible discipline, incredible structures, incredible Six Sigma um, business operational efficiencies. Right. But they didn't have a lot of that creativity or innovation by which to see other opportunities. And so that's where I realized it's not either or, but rather yes and. It's the coming together of both our intuitive, creative, artistic self and our disciplined, rational, logical, 
structured grinding self. And that's where uh, really all of my practice and all of my books have been born from is the, the beauty of yes and and the delicious agony of uncertainty and not truly knowing exactly where we're going to go, but trusting the process that there's going to be something good around that corner, something they're working towards that we just can't fully envision yet. But to, again, trust that process, know our structure, but continue believing in how we can pursue other new and different ideas that your competitors never even thought possible. Maybe even that your, your own valued existing customers didn't yet know that they needed by breaking outside of that structure or that grinding as usual to come up with new concepts. Well, it's, you know, it's interesting that uh, you say that because you talked about in the book, this element of how corporate America has basically divided the creatives with the marketing people. You talked about the cubicles, even I remember, you know, cause I've been in plenty of businesses where there's yeah. cubicles <laughs> and you got the creatives over here you know, maybe those are the software engineers uh, and and or whatever. Uh, and then you got these guys that are grinding it out doing the marketing, selling whatever the products are. Um, it sounded to me like, you know, you were inferring that they've gotten that wrong, that those two elements should be united, not divided. Um, what What advice would you give to a business person who's listened to this podcast today who potentially has something like that going on in their company um, to help them uh, get more mileage out of what they're doing. The cross-pollinization of the two. So yes, you're naturally going to have those departments, the, the marketing, the sales, the networking, innovation design that are going to have been, historically, they see themselves as more creative. And that's largely because as children, they migrate towards that which they're affirmed for. Um, if we're affirmed for getting 20 out of 20 hour spelling tests, being logical, being data-driven, being mathematic, we're going to continue moving that direction and assume that we're more analytical. If we're more creative, more spontaneous, more intuitive, we're going to get told that, oh, we're, we're creative and to continue pursuing that direction. So the, the truth is that we're all actually both. And for the cross-pollinization, that those who are in the structured data-driven departments can realize their inherent creative value by understanding how the marketing department works. They don't need to become the marketing department. That's where the, the one plus one equals three uh, is that they can do more by allowing the marketing department to soar and to understand not to combat or conflict or compare with them, but to understand and to network in. And for the same time, for the, the creative department to understand the inherent goodness of the logic and structure of the, the business side. And so really understanding the value of both and yes, and, and actually becoming more creative and or more logical and grinding through the process and understanding and working with each other. So it's again, that one plus one equals three. Uh, for me, I like to balance both to the extreme that I can in myself alone. How can it become the most analytical and uh, data-driven at the same time of being the most creative and intuitive. I'm still in that process, but that's what my passion is, is the balance between those two, the yin and the yang, the spark and the grind, the artistic and scientific, those oftentimes dualistic ideas, conceptual ideas, marrying them into one idea. Um, and I, I like doing that in every way, life, death, hope, 
pain, suffering, darkness, love, business, art, science, all of those elements is where um, that sparks my own creativity and leads me forward because they're all possible solutions and possible new answers. So that's why it drives me inside. Well, I, I, I always uh, reflect back on what Buddha said. You can't have light without darkness. You can't have love without hate. You can't. All of these dualities that we talk about are blended. It is part of who we are as human beings. It's the human experience, right? But what one of those does to uh, enlighten or bring uh, forth the other is really what it's about. You know, you talked about the pain of of going through financial collapse. Um, you know, you could say, well, I, I wish I had always had hundreds of millions of dollars in the bank. I went through a personal bankruptcy, so I know the pain of that because your reputation is caught up into that, right? And again, that's that cloak on the outside. Yet when you come back, what you find out is you come back way stronger than the way you were before. And I want to move to a question because how do we best learn how to trust in the unknown? Because when you're going through financial collapse, it's total unknown. There's a lot of people out there today that either might be on the brink or are there, and it's an unknown, and we'll just talk about finances. It could be a lot of things, but let's just say finances, because it is so contrary to how we are programmed as human beings. We're programmed as human beings to not want to accept that, right? We want to push it away. We want to do anything. And as they say, pride goeth before the fall. A lot of times, Pride goeth before the fall when somebody's having financial issues. What advice would you have, whether it's financial or otherwise, about how people can embrace uncertainty or the unknown and become more comfortable with it? Sure. Prior to suffering, prior to the fall, there's almost always some sort of change uh, that happens in our life. And Soren Kierkegaard said, you know, all change is preceded by crisis. I would love to tell you uh, there's another way. I would love to tell you that uh, there are other, other catalysts, but there is no greater catalyst than change, which oftentimes comes to us in the form of loss or suffering. And you know, in the case for you and I, financial suffering, they, they really, there's two, two other big ones, the three. The one is uh, health loss or the loss of a loved one. Um, so it's some sort of relationship, personal financial or personal health issue. Most of the time, our change or crisis can, is preceded by. So realizing that, you know, again, a tenet of, of Buddhism, that life is difficult. Life is suffering. We can't have life without death. So this is all part of it. This change is not something to be, it, it hurts. It can hurt deeply, but it's also a path to a new way, a new light, a new idea. Uh, and so we, you know, we look for uh, it, I, this delicious agony of suffering. Uh, we, we do. We numb it at all costs in our culture. I tried to numb it as, as I could. Everyone's tried to numb it in some way that works for a short period of time, but it's not a long-term uh, solution to the challenge. We need to face that suffering, turn and face it actually, and then deal with it. Because unless we are able to transform our pain, our suffering, we're, we're doomed to transmit it. And that, that's a Richard Rohr specialty, but I had to live that, that unless I'm able to find an answer for my own loss, my own suffering or darkness, 
then I'm doomed to transmit it to others. So that, that has been the, the ahas for my own personal crises, my own personal changes is to realize that that's what's going to take me in the new direction. And like I go to the gym to look for resistance, to find suffering and sweat and pain so that my muscles grow stronger in my, my marriage. I don't look for suffering and hardship, but it's through those challenges that our marriage grows stronger, that my relationship with my boys grows stronger. And so it's the same thing with my business and with our creativity, our creative pursuits is that uncertainty needs to be met. It needs to feel that resistance, to feel that void, to feel that I don't know. But though that's where the, the deliciousness of new ideas comes from is oftentimes in that darkness of our suffering. And so for so many of your listeners, viewers who either themselves are going through a dark state because of what's going on in our world right now, or will be or has a loved one that's going through it is there is meaning in the mystery of suffering. There's great light that can come from understanding the darkness that surrounds us in our aloneness. And much of, and Blaise Pascal said that much of man's misery uh, can be accounted for by his inability to sit alone in a room with his own thoughts. And that's where the suffering happens the deepest without numbing it, but it's where those answers start to emerge from. And like I said, I wish I could tell your, your listeners that no, it's, it's a, a triumphant aha and you just have to color in the coloring book and then you'll feel free right. like a kid again. But it's no, it's, it's going back into our aloneness to checking our, our worldview. Where are we viewing scarcity? Where are we viewing abundance? And as we lean back into in our darkness, our suffering, we lean back into purposefully, proactively into gratitude, back into compassion, empathy. All of a sudden we begin to blossom back out and the suffering becomes less and the hope becomes greater. Not all at once, but I really honestly do believe in that process because I've now lived it a couple of times, once financially, now once with my own health, and then with the loss of my father. And so I yeah. continue to re-experience. And I would add to that, that uh, when you go into a position of suffering, whether it's financial or health, or it's whatever, it's because something changed. And frequently, most of the time you become, most people become angry. And what I could say is that the anger does not serve you living through this suffering. To sit with suffering and to experience it, because the anger is your way of pushing it away, right? And to really get the full benefit from it, you ultimately will come to this anyway, because the anger is one way to just push it away. And anger is one of those emotions, which is destructive. It literally is hey, it ruins a relationship. It ruins a lot of things, right? Because you start to take it out on other people because you can't deal with the unknown. You can't deal with the uncertainty of it. And so what all I would tell people who might be going through this or experiencing some of this, um, if you can do something to help you release the anger, go run, go lift weights, go take a walk in nature, go do something that if it's physical, great. If not, you know, read your favorite book. And that brings me to this great quote from Robert Frost um, that said, that individual creation begins with knowing your own bone. Pursue it, keep it, keep up with it, circle around and around your life. Know your own bone, gnaw at it, bury it, unearth it, 
and gnaw at it still. How do we find our own calling or our bone in life? The uh, in, a Japanese culture has this great uh, example called Ikigai, where you discover your identity uh, through this process of kind of going through a series of, of questions. But what I think it comes down to is a couple of questions, either around your dinner table with your family, your kids, uh, if you're brave enough, you know, ask it in, in the boardroom, but to each person to ask them, number one, what breaks your heart? And then number two, what lights you up? What really gets you going? And as we understand those questions in ourselves, and you know, some people might have a different answer to those, but that is our identity, is searching out what lights us up and then understanding what really breaks our heart. And those are those things that drive us towards action. And it really gives meaning to our, our lives. And that's where understanding our identity, I think, is where a lot of these elements start. Uh, one that's been so meaningful to me in so many different chapters of my life. And like you said, again, it, uh, finding a, anger is a level one response. It's understandable. There, there's injustice in the world. There's, there's really disappointing and uh, challenging things, things that don't meet our expectations. We get jobbed by a deal. Maybe someone we really care about says something unkind. Maybe we lose something. Uh, anger is an understandable response. But like you said, that anger, extended anger doesn't serve anyone. And unless we find an answer for that anger ourselves, unless we're able to transform that anger in ourselves, that we're the, the last row, that we're not going to transmit it on or project our anger onto our spouse, onto our kids, onto our uh, competitor, unless we find a way to transform it inside ourselves, inside our aloneness, inside of our soul or our heart, then we're doomed to transmit it. And so finding if, if it is running, if it's meditating, if it is uh, expressing gratitude, if it is just going and doing something in service towards another, there's a lot of tactical reasons that people have given, but that is, I think, is driven from. Then when we experience anger, go to that question. What breaks your heart? What lights you up? and try and return to some of those ideas and explore them to find your joy again, to release your anger and to let it go and to not let it control you. To, un not, to not ignore our anger because anger is real, to, to feel it fully and then to release it and let it go so that it's not burdening us any longer. But letting go is a big part of that process. Well, now, for you to become an artist, right, was a big transition. And you state the single greatest benefit in being a consistent creators is that the process doesn't just improve what you create and improves who you are. So we're just talking about how did you transcend to become unique at what you do and what made you kind of stand out from the crowd? Because, hey, you know, there are people doing what you do now. Right. There are, you know, I'm not saying they're copycats, but the point is, is there are people that are um, live art on stage. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. um, yep. You know, there's always been graphic facilitators, but they're not the same as what you're doing. You're actually creating a piece of art um, and and maybe them, the ones that are sketch noters that I know. I know many of them, David Sibbets and all kinds of guys that are just awesome sketch noters mm -hmm. and people in the True. community. But. The point is, is that you're creating a piece of art and are you using watercolors? You was using oils. I mean, what do you actually use there? And what made you, what got you to the point where you stand out? 
the the ahas for me early on the creation of my brand identity and my pursuit um was that i saw a lot of those great artists certainly the graphologists um the picassos michelangelo studied their work the current artists and how they thought uh and then also understood a lot of the great speakers thought gurus and uh, really talented presenters. And what I found was there were a lot of great presenters who didn't pursue art or didn't show their art. And there were a lot of great artists who didn't talk about business concepts. So the aha for me was to fuse those two together and to become the best corporate thought leader who could express his ideas artistically uh, or through art channels. And so the ones that I actually use on, on stage are speed painting with both oils, acrylics, and latex paint. And through a lot of discipline and practice, was able to hone that skill to make it performance ready alongside my uh, research and development and customization and understanding of markets and actually presenting itself. So it was it was a combining of those which created my brand and I think my competitive advantage in the marketplace for the years that were uh, successful for me was I was there again there's a lot of great artists and there were a lot of great speakers but there weren't a lot of great artists who were speakers or right. speakers who were artists and right. so that was kind of that little pocket that I found that um, was able to actualize that idea and and make a living out of it yeah and you know you you talk about one of your chapters is keep your day job and you state that don't buy into the notion that you have to journey beyond your current context to find the greater creativity you're looking for. Greater creativity potential is within everybody. I 100% agree. Um, what are the four reasons you mention them uh, in the book that are the best place to begin grinding new sparks because there's people out there that are listening to this and they're at this point in the interview and they're going, okay, Hey, I don't really like my day job, but you're telling me I should keep it. And I want to figure out how I can grind some new sparks. The, the four points boilerplate down into one, which is to minimize your stress. And if we put the stress of having to earn income and shelter and food and safety based strictly on our artistic pursuits, it puts undue pressure on that artistic creation or that idea by which to have to produce commoditization or monetization of that idea too early. And so I would say, let these ideas marinate while you're continuing to knock out the rent with your day job to know that then the day job becomes a fuel tank for feeding this dream, not uh, not at the expense of, but rather it, it takes on new purpose. We're able to grind harder doing what we're doing in the day job right now, even if we don't love it because the day job now has new meaning to feed this idea. And so when I say uh, don't quit the day job, it's don't put undue stress on those creative ideas by having to raise enough money to live on. Allow yourself the luxury of keeping the day job, but allowing those ideas to, to grow. And the best time to start is not in the future. The best time to start is now in the mm -hmm. present mm -hmm. to start jotting, start with jotting down these ideas, start taking time out of your day for brainstorming, for long walks, for meditation, to ruminate on those ideas, but to start it now as if it's in your incubation lab. Where you're continuing to go to work, you're continuing to make money, but you've got you've got something very exciting working over here that maybe you're not even talking about with other people yet. That's your it's your big b hag. 
it is your your big hairy, big hairy audacious, audacious goal. goal. <laughs> yeah, that, that you're looking forward to launching in the future, and that becomes your why for all of these things that you're doing in your life to raise money, to maintain safety, security, and minimize stress, so that you're able to launch your BHAG at the appropriate time. Well, it's wonderful. And I'm going to end this with one last question um, so that I can let you know I know, go because I know you got other things to do besides talk to me. And I really, really appreciate you. And for my listeners, we'll have a link uh, to Eric's website. He's got a store there as well. We have links to Amazon. Uh, the book is The Spark in the Grind, Ignite the Power of Discipline Creativity. Definitely uh, click on our link so you get that book. This and Unthink are two that should be by your bedside uh, and then go into his store. He's got some very cool accessories that you can get as well. Um, and I am going to, I'm going to make you pronounce this gentleman's name because I've seen it so many times. I've pronounced it before, but I always unpronounce it. Gentleman who wrote the book creativity, Mihail, Mi, how do you say it? Mihaly, gent Mihaly. Yeah. Okay. So you end this book or you come close to ending the book with this quote, about him saying, when people are asked to choose from a list of the best description of how they feel when they're doing whatever they enjoy, enjoy doing the most, the answer most frequently chosen is designing or discovering something new. Okay? So I concur because I've been a prolific guy who's created all kinds of stuff. Didn't all go, but I was constantly thinking about new ideas. When you go on to say that the conundrum of creativity is the management of our energy, that's part of my book. I say most people, you just said, hey, keep your day job. Somebody listening is going, well, geez, am I going to have enough energy to do my day job and then do the creativity and then continue to incubate this idea? And I've always said that managing energy is one of the biggest things. Uh, It's in my little circle on going from intuition to innovation. Um, how does routine play into how we manage energy? And what would you like to leave our listeners with, Eric, about balancing between the spark and the grind? That we're, we're managing the flow. And when we already feel like we're operating at maximum capacity, we've, we've got our day job, we've got our family, our kids, our piano lessons, our soccer games, our competitors, our community, community commitments, is when we find something we love, like Mihaly talks about, or that which is autotelic or self-driven, what we find is, is our capacity expands. So where we thought we were operating at maximum capacity, all of a sudden we have more because we've desired something greater. So that's where we're reborn into a greater capacity by which to be able to take on not only all of these obligations, but to find time and make time for those creative pursuits because the meaning behind them has changed. Our conscious state behind them has changed and we're trying to fund and manage these not obligations because we love all of these elements in our life, but we also have something new that we're driving towards. And that's why creativity is one of those spiritual fuels that I think allows for more of each of every one of those things. And that's how we know our identity. And, you know, I only learned what was too much by having to go too far. And which is a lot of where my, my books are written from is, listen, I believe in all of these things. I've lived all of these things, the grinding and the sparking. And now it's coming back to a balance, uh, this dynamic balance, dy- dynamic intelligence, emotional intelligence of yes and 
And that's what I'd want to leave your your listeners with, your viewers list is lit with is that it's it is a Taoist yin and yang balance of all of these dueling uh contradicting terms in our mind that we've been taught weighing them together including life and death and love and pain and suffering and hope and art and execution all are together as one and for me that's an exciting mix that hasn't even been fully explored yet so i'm looking forward to continue diving into that in the second half of my life i'm i'm new to this whole new ideas in that in that sense well, I can't wait for the book that you and Tasha are coming out about spirituality, because the reality is, is that, you know, um, we look at all these elements of our life, our health, um, our mental, uh, uh, developing our mental self, uh, our spiritual self. Uh, so physical, mental, spiritual, emotional, all of those sides. And I personally believe that one of the closest ways to get you more creative is to have a very strong spiritual practice, some spiritual practice, meditation. I happen to be a devotee of self-realization fellowship. Uh, and, and it doesn't matter. I'm not being biased toward anything. What I'm saying is that has a tendency out of all the things, physical, emotional, mental, to bring in more balance. And if you can use that and bring that balance in, you start to look at life with a new purview with a new lens with a new way um you know there it's not just rose colored glasses but it is a great way to look at the world and it's a way to see things in a different light and i think you're all about enlightening people to see things and the yes and and that yes and is i can do my day job and i can have success building a new invention an idea bringing it to light and whatever and just stay the grind, right? Just stay the grind. So again, for my listeners, uh, Eric Wall, the book is The Spark and the Grind. Um, it's the disciplined way. Whoops, excuse me. <laughs> it's the discipline, igniting the power of disciplined creativity. I'm going to recommend everybody go out and get that. Eric, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for spending time with me. I really appreciate your time. This was a great interview. Everybody's going to love it. Um, enjoyed my time with you this morning. Thank you, Greg. You're very good at your job. It was an honor to be part of your, your podcast and a part of your tribe. So thank you, everyone, for listening. And thank you, Greg, for having me on as a guest. This podcast, number 796, has been brought to you by Dr. Rick Stevenson, the author of a new book entitled 21 Things You Forgot About Being a Kid. Please join Rick and Greg on podcast number 793, where they speak about Rick's fascinating journey called 5,000 Day Project, where he has interviewed over 5,700 kids in an effort to learn more about their personal stories and what they want to express about their lives, both the good and not so good. Rick has captured through his new book, Stories and Insights for the Reader, that will change their lives for the better. Rick calls this process guided visual journaling. I know you are going to enjoy this interesting and engaging interview with a filmmaker, philosopher, storyteller, and writer. If you want to learn more about Rick and 21 Things You Forgot About Being a Kid, please go to www.rickstevenson.com. 
That's R-I-C-K-S-T-E-V-E-N-S-O-N dot com. Thanks for listening.